Well, good morning. How are we doing today? Good. Hey, if you would open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter two. We're going to be looking at, at Daniel this morning. And I know it's not a traditional Christmas passage, but but trust me, we'll get there. But one of the things that, that, that I've come to know, and don't let the gray hairs on my head fool you, I am actually still in my 30s, uh, believe it or not. And, and one of the things that I've learned in my, in my short uh, life on earth, at least that's what I am holding on to, this short period of life on earth, is that anticipation often breeds experience. That, that anticipation often breeds experience. So, so a few weeks ago, Lindsay and I got to celebrate our 15 year anniversary. And it's not real cool to take four kids on your anniversary trip with you. And so we shipped them off or we sent them to my sister's house. And so my sister was a saint and she just, uh, took care of these four kids for four days. And so we get back and we meet my sister halfway between here and Dallas. And she tells me a story that she had where Hudson, was eating dinner one night. And one thing you have to know about Hudson is he doesn't like a lot of vegetables. And secondly, when you try to make him eat vegetables, he kind of has this gag reflex in him. And to be honest, Lindsay and I have given up many years ago trying to have him eat vegetables. But my sister was still living in the old adage that we grew up with, with no thank you portions. And so Hudson gets up, he gets his food, there are no vegetables on it. And then my sister comes over and spoons these orange things onto his plate. And he looks at her and he's like, oh, I don't like those. And she goes, well, well, Hudson, this is a no thank you portion. You have to do that. And he, he, he tells her, hey, my mom and dad gave up on no thank you portions a long time ago. <laughs> and she goes, well, we're in my house now. And you're... Your dad can raise you how he wants you to. But here in my house, we have no thank you portions. So Hudson eats all of his food around these orange things. And it's all done. All the kids have left. And here is Hudson sitting with my sister waiting to eat these, eat these things. So she says, Hudson, it's time. And so Hudson picks one of these orange things up with a fork puts it in his mouth, and she tells me about a millisecond happens in his mouth, and he starts this vomiting reflex, spits out the orange thing, and is just like over, like uncontrollable. He's like, you know, just like trying to get this thing out. And she goes, Hudson, you didn't even taste it. And he goes, yeah, I don't like sweet potatoes. And she looks at him and she goes, those aren't sweet potatoes. Those are carrots. And Hudson goes, oh, I like carrots, picks it up, eats it, and then gets it down in his, in his belly. Literally, that's what happens. You see, anticipation determines experience. And that's just not true about vegetables and no thank you portions. I found it true in, in conversations I've had with my wife. You know those moments when you're like, oh, I've got to have this conversation and it's probably not going to go well. And I, in my mind, I'll start working up all these things that, that she's going to say, all the ways that she's going to combat or, or disagree with what I have to say. And in my mind, I'm working myself up and how I'm going to answer all those things. Yet oftentimes what happens is inside that experience, inside that anticipation, when I go have that conversation with my wife, it typically ends how I think it's going to end. Because the reason I say that is because it's a, it's a surprise when it ends differently. You see, anticipation 
determines experience more often than not. And so my hope for us this morning is that we could center our mind and anticipate what we get to celebrate here in nine days. So that we can begin to feel inside of our heart and feel inside of our soul this this night that literally changed the world. Yet so often when we come to this type of Christmas season, we anticipate so many other things. We anticipate all the presents that have to be bought. I was sitting up here having a conversation with Steve. He's like, are you ready for Christmas? And I was like, no, I'm not ready for Christmas. Not even a little bit. And so my heart began to anticipate all the things that I have to get done. Some of us, for the first time, are experiencing some loss in our life. And going through this Christmas season, feeling that sort of anticipation is causing us to begin to feel emotionally drained and emotionally sad already. Some of us are anticipating family that are going to descend like a hurricane in your house in just a few days. And you're anticipating how you're going to handle all the situations and handle all the things that have to get done. And and, and the chess match you're going to play to make sure Aunt Susie doesn't fight with Johnny again. And, and, And how this Christmas season will have just a little bit of peace inside of it. And when we anticipate all those things, we often miss the reason that we're anticipating for. And so my hope for this morning is that we would look at Daniel chapter 2 and we, be, we would begin to anticipate the things that God is doing by remembering and by seeing God prophesying something to a king through a dream. And then see how that played out in history. So let's look at Daniel chapter 2. Now, now, now just to catch us up, Daniel um, is in Babylon. Jerusalem was captured by the Babylonian army and the Babylonian rule, the way they did it is they took all of the resource from the city they conquered. They moved it to their capital. And so Daniel is one of the wise men. He's one of the up and comers inside of Jerusalem. And so, the, and so they look at him and they say, hey, you have potential. Let's come with us into Babylon. So Daniel and his friends are considered one of the wise people, one of the wise men in Babylon. They are given preferential treatment by the king. But then in Daniel chapter 2, the king starts having this dream that torments him. He's frustrated by it. He doesn't quite know what to do with it. And so he summons the wise men from Babylon. And he begins to tell them to interpret the dream. But not just interpret the dream. They want He wants them to tell them the dream and interpret the dream. The wise men of Babylon can't do it. So King Nebuchadnezzar has an overreaction Monday and orders all of the wise men in Babylon to be killed. Daniel hears about the plan, walks up to the man that's supposed to kill him and says, Hey, give me a shot to interpret and tell the dream. So the guy says, okay, I'll give you a shot. So he takes him to Nebuchadnezzar. First Daniel prays, finds himself in the presence of Nebuchadnezzar. And here's what happens in Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 31. It says, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, 
its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. Underline no human hand if you're taking notes. And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, this has got to be from God because I don't know about you, but that's a pretty vivid type of dream. Daniel looks at Nebuchadnezzar and says, hey, here's the dream that you just had. And it's a very frightening image. It's not this image that you would think. It's a statue that's made up of a bunch of different metals. And at the very bottom, like the iron is in this clay. And then in the distance, there's some mountain. And out of that mountain comes a stone. But that stone like doesn't come by any human hand. It's some mystical type of force. And that stone hits the image. And that image makes all the metals that's there, that whole statue, just go away. Like the threshing floor, like when they throw the wheat up into the wind and all the wheat, the seed would land at the floor and all the chaff would just blow away in the wind. That's going to be like that metal. Now, that's not an image that we would set up normally. I mean, that's kind of a modern uh, kind of weird image like you're at, you know, like some museum and you're like, what is that thing? You're like some park in Austin because that's where that belongs. Some weird image in a park in Austin. And you're like, this is weird. What is that? And so Daniel begins to interpret the dream here. And here's what he says. Verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory. And into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field. And the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. So as Daniel is interpreting this dream, he looks at Nebuchadnezzar and he says, Hey, God has given you the whole world to rule over. Like you literally are the most powerful man in the room wherever you go. You've given every nation You've given every beast of the field. You have everything to rule over. And you are the image of gold. Now what's fascinating is in this moment, historically, Herodotus, a man who's an ancient historian that we have his writings, visits Babylon 90 years after, 90 years after the rule of Nebuchadnezzar. And what he notes is that This city that Nebuchadnezzar ruled over had some of the, had the most amount of gold he'd ever seen in any other city. We see in in Daniel chapter 4 that Nebuchadnezzar tries to set up this city of gold and he succeeds it. He builds this tall golden image. But not only that, Herodotus goes in and says that he built chapels, temples, altars and vessels and all of these things were made out of gold and so when someone walked into the city of Babylon 
not only do they see like, this is where the known world comes, but all this is like the ruling place of the world, but they also saw gold everywhere. And so this image that Daniel looks at, he says, hey, you, you are the gold. Now look at verse 39. But he says this, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. So he says, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, just letting you know, you're the image of gold. You will have gold. You're ruling the known world as we know it right now. But there's going to be another kingdom that's going to be a world power. And if we look at the dream, that's the arms of silver. What's fascinating, though, is that the Medo-Persian Empire came. They They were the group that conquered Babylon. Their army raised up. And they began to take over little pieces of the Babylonian Empire. Now, the way that they funded all of those wars was unique. They developed, they developed a system of taxation. Thank you very much, Medes and Persians. They developed this, this system of taxation. But they required that every amount of taxes that you owed be paid in, what do you think? Silver. And so it was actually the coffers of silver that allowed the Medes and Persians to finance all of the wars they were fighting against Babylon. And so this this was the first time that they paid an army to go and fight for them. And it was the coffers of the people, it was the coffers of silver that allowed them to take over. Isn't that fascinating? To take over the world. But it keeps going. Daniel 39 uh, B. And yet a third kingdom of bronze shall rule over all the earth. The Medes and Persians, they had roughly 200 years of world domination. But then there's this other group that begins to rise up. And we know that in the statue, it's this brass. It's the chest, the torso, and the legs, the thighs of brass. Now, The next group that kind of started taking over the world were the Greeks. The Greeks. Alexander the Great was one of the Greek generals. He was a remarkable man. He was was a type A guy. He had a lot of drive. He had a lot of intuition. He knew when to fight. He knew when to pull back. But he began to conquer all the Medes and the Persians. Like he made his way up through modern day Turkey and then kind of kept going, moved south towards the Mediterranean empires, gets to a certain spot, sees the ocean. And as the story goes, it says that he cried because there were no more nations to conquer. I mean, how about that for drive? How about that for for wanting to take over and rule things? So he takes over the known world. But what's fascinating is when a a Medes and Persian military soldier walks into a city, they kind of have a tunic around their head. They have this kind of arms that have long sleeves on it, uniform. And then they have these trousers. But when a Greek soldier walks into a city to take it over, here's what he has. He has all those undercoatings, but then he has a helmet. And he has a breastplate. And he has a Captain America shield. And he has these 
this metal that covers his body. What do you think it was made out of? Brass. Like he, they walk into the city and they're immediately stunned by the shininess of the brass inside of them that they're looking at. And so the symbol, the symbol that, that the Greek nation, their conquest was known by was the brass that they were holding. Isn't it fascinating that history is following the same statue? But then it keeps going. Verse 40. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. So we have the Babylonian Empire. We have the Medes and the Persians. We have the Greek army. And then it says iron. And it's iron because it will crush all of these. Now the Roman Empire, they, the way they organized their army is that they took the vast amounts of people that they had and they organized them in between three and 6,000 what they called legions. And these legions were, were ferocious. Like they had ferocity. They had, um, they, they were ruthless and they would never ever quit. They kept fighting. They never stopped. They never surrendered. And so they earned the nickname of what? The Iron Legions. And so here we have this Roman army that is taken over, begins to slowly take over all of the Greek areas and they begin to take in all the area and they have this world domination and it says that they will be the largest the longest of these they will crush all of these kingdoms in other words they will be the most sustained the longest with the rule that they have and we see that true in history but here's where it gets even more interesting it says verse 41 and as you saw the feet And the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. So it talks about this iron that is in a way divided. Now the way the Roman Empire ruled is when they took over a country, and they took over a kingdom. What they didn't do was take it over like the Babylonians did, And get all of their resources and drain them and take them back to Rome. They didn't do that. They actually went to the nation. They began to tax it and put roads inside of it so they could travel easily. They appointed someone from the Roman Empire, Roman government, to be over the province. But they allowed the day-to-day operations of the country to be done by the locals. So I find it fascinating when he says, as you saw the feet and toes, that they will be a divided kingdom. Some of the firmness of the iron in it. And then others with soft clay. 
So not only does it talk about how the Roman government was going to rule the world, but this dream even describes how the Roman government was going to govern as well. How they were going to lead the day. But then look at what happens in verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all of these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. Underline no human hand. And it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. And I love this line. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. You see that like like Daniel's looking at this dream and he is like, hey, king, let me tell you something. There's going to be the Babylonian Empire and that's you. And then there's going to be another kingdom that's going to rule the world. Then there's going to be another kingdom that's going to rule the world. And then there's going to be this other kingdom and they're going to be really strong. It's going to be a divided state and there's going to be some iron, some clay. But then there's this thing that's going to happen. There's this mountain over here and there's a stone that's going to come in and destroy all of it. And it's going to transcend all of these kingdoms. It's going to transcend every bit of this thing. This stone, it's going to grow. It may start small, but that thing's going to grow and it's going to grow quick. And it's going to become known and it's going to become known and known and known. And it's going to be bigger than anything you've ever seen before. This dream is certain. And it's secure. Like, I love that line. But here's what, here's where, where, like, the rubber meets the road for us. Inside of that dream, the Roman Empire, it says that a stone is going to come. And it's not come, it doesn't come by any human hands. He's talking about Mary. He's talking about the birth of the Savior. Because inside Roman rule, this little girl who's asleep, this teenager who's asleep, has an angel come to her. And that angel tells her, hey, uh, Mary, let me tell you something. Um, God has chosen you um, to be the mom of the Savior of the world. And she's like, that's cool. Um, But here's the problem. I'm engaged to Joseph. And we haven't done the thing. That allows babies to come about. And he's like, I know. I know you haven't done that. Uh, because the Holy Spirit is going to come inside of you. And cause you to become pregnant. And she goes, okay. Uh, that's, that's weird. Um, but, but we'll go with it. And in the line of Luke chapter 2, one of my favorite lines. It says, let this be to me as you said. I'm a servant of the Lord. So then she goes to Joseph and tells him about this story. And he's like, I've got some questions. She's like, yeah, I know. Me too. I've got questions as well. But they wait 40 weeks. And because the Roman government was so big, they had to take a census. And everybody had to go to where they were born. Mary's like, hey, look, Herod, I'm like 40 weeks pregnant here. Uh, the last thing I want to do is get on a donkey and ride from where I am to Bethlehem. 
Uh, Joseph takes her. And as they pull into the city, she's like, hey, it's time. And Joseph's like, I know, I know it's time we're here. She goes, no, it's time. Like, it's time to have a baby. Find me a place to stay. So they go in and there's no room at any inn. And finally this innkeeper says, hey, well, we have some stables in the back, a manger. He's like, we'll take it. And it's in that manger that a baby is born from no human hand that changes everything. I remember uh, when my first daughter was born. Her name is Brooke and she's 12 years old now. And I think July 26, 2006 was a busy day in Dallas because there was a record number of babies at the hospital born that day. Lindsay had a C-section and so we were in the operating room and and, and I'm kind of at her head and then looking over and seeing all the stuff that's going on, taking pictures of all the happenings there on the operating table. And she's like, what's going on? And I'm like, hey, are you feeling any of this? Because like your insides are on the outside and like, I don't know what's happening here. And she goes, no, I don't feel anything. I'm like, good, you don't want to. And so I start looking over and I've got pictures of like Brooke, like coming out of Lindsay's uh, tummy. I say tummy because I'm a dad now of her tummy. And in that moment, like I was, I was a little caught off guard, if I'm being honest with you. Like I have my wife on the operating table. I have this baby who's crying. And as soon as they take her out, they show her to me and not very attractive, but they show her to me. And then they go and they take her about 10 feet away from us. And I don't know what to look at at this moment. I'm like, do I encourage Lindsay and do I make sure that they're putting all the insides back or outsides, whatever, all the insides back inside of her? And I'm looking at all these things and, and, and Lindsay is, I'm looking at Claire or Claire, I'm looking at Brooke and she's crying and I'm like, okay, she's cool. And then I walk back over to Lindsay. Hey, she's great. She's screaming great lungs. Good job, babe. And then she, I'm coming back over here and like going back and forth and not knowing what to do. And then they swaddle her up and I had this moment, they hand her to me. And then I get to like show her to Lindsay and Lindsay gives her a kiss and I give her a kiss and I put her in the crib and and I get to wheel her out to the waiting room where my family is. And we didn't find out what the gender was like we we kind of wanted to go old school with it. And so I got to announce like this beautiful baby girl to my family and her family, Lindsay's family, and they got to ooh and ah over her. And and then they took her away from us like the hospital did. This would never fly now. But, but, but 12 years ago, like the, the, at Presby Plano, like the nursery was under construction and it was on a different floor and they didn't allow parents to go with them. And, and so they took Brooke away and there was a record number of babies like in the hospital that day. And so four hours later, Brooke gets wheeled into our room. And it was kind of odd because, you know, some family members had just left to go get lunch. And so it was just Lindsay and I. And so they wheel Brooke into the room. They check our wristbands to make sure it was really ours. And then the nurse just leaves. Lindsay and I look at each other and I'm like, gosh, we did this. Like we had a baby. And then like we look at each other. And there's like this panic on our face. And I get up and I run out. Literally, I get up and I run out and I talk to the nurse. I'm like, hey, what do we do now? Like what's next? I didn't see a manual. This is a 2006 version. I don't know what to do. And she goes, well, maybe you should try to feed her. I'm like, great. So we try to feed her all that process. And 
family comes back and they oogle over her again and hold her. It's just a really cool moment. And then all the family leaves and, and I'm spending the night and Lindsay's at the hospital. Lindsay's there on the hospital bed and, you know, Brooke is still there and Lindsay's asleep because I'm not, and I'm holding Brooke because I'm not just quite ready to let her go to the nursery yet. Because we were going to let her go to the nursery because we needed some sleep. And I hold her and as I'm looking at her, I'm like, like this little girl changes everything for us. I mean, she's going to change the way I spend my money. Dramatically. <laughs> like she's going to change the way that, that I spend my time. I had dreams of being a good golfer. That's all gone now. Like, like she changed the way that, the, the way I was going to feel emotion. She was going to change the way that, that, that I would feel situations. Like if there's any sort of feeling of fear here, it's, I'm, I'm stepping up and I'm becoming the protector. Where now I just kind of walk through the middle of it. Like she literally changed everything. This little girl changed our trajectory. And as Mary is sitting in the manger holding this baby and and looking at it, she's got, her mind has got to go back to that moment that she's with Gabriel and he's telling her what's going to happen. And she's holding this baby. Some shepherds come and Tell them how they got there with the stars aligning together. And she is like, this baby is going to change everything. And sure enough, 33 years, Jesus was on the earth. 33 years. Not a long time. I passed that a few years ago. And Jesus set into motion this kingdom that's going to transcend every kingdom. Every kingdom. Just like that stone that's not, that comes by no human hand destroys and dwarfs that statue. God, Jesus Himself, transcends all of those things. He lives 33 years. He dies on the cross for our sin. He restores the relationship that was broken with the Lord. He gives us now access to the Lord himself. And then now here we are and his kingdom is growing. It starts in Acts, Jerusalem, 3,000 people are saved that day. And then it just keeps going and going and going. Then the Roman government decides it's going to persecute some Christians. And so the Christians scatter and they scatter to the known world. And then it just keeps going and going and going. It survives eradication attempts. And then and here we are now in 2018 celebrating what Jesus did and he came at some day in a manger out of human hands and then now we're celebrating this like movement of God sitting in a room in Bryan College Station, Texas because God decided to show up one day and transcend every kingdom. And so here we are like celebrating those things. And so the question now is what are we anticipating like, like, what are we actually anticipating today? Because when we begin to anticipate things outside of that, then we miss what God actually does. And so the question I want to leave us and ask is, what are you anticipating? 
Are you anticipating everything that you have to get done? Are you anticipating the crazy family that's coming? Are you anticipating all the things that you have to get done at work for year end? And and I started thinking about this and I was like, man, I, I should I should come up with a bunch of things that that of, of ways that we can anticipate like the Lord during the season. And and the truth is, like I wrote out six or seven things that we could do to anticipate the Lord well in the season. Uh, but the truth is, I don't want to give you any of them. Which is kind of weird. I know. But, but, but I would love for us, like maybe a challenge. For you to go home today. And, and ask the Lord, say, hey, God, like, what is the best way for me to anticipate the Christmas season? That you would that you would sit down and you would say, hey, God. Like, my heart is actually far away from you. I've been thinking about all these ancillary things. And for you to just have an honest moment with the Lord and say, God, what do I need to do in my heart, in my life, and in my family's life to anticipate you well? And I'm just convinced that when he does that, like, that when we do that, we come to the Lord honestly, he's just going to show up inside of us. He's going to tell us what we need to do. Because there are so many ways to anticipate things, especially around Christmas. You have like the Jesse tree. You have all these Advent readings, all these things. But my hope is that you would just come to the Lord honestly and say, God, what do I need to do to anticipate you well? And if you start struggling, Google it. That's what college students do for their first dates anyway. Google good first dates. Just Google it. And what will happen is God will begin to stir your heart so that we can anticipate him well. My prayer for us is that we would be people that anticipate well so we have great experience. So let us be a group of people this season and anticipate the right things a movement that starts so that we can experience the Christmas season in a way that we never have before. God, thanks for your word. God, thanks for hundreds of years before that that you prophesied through a dream and you wrote history before it even happened. God, I just love the fact that you're in control, that you're in charge of things. And God, I pray that today, even though we might not have been anticipating you well all this month or through the Advent season, but God, I pray today that you would center our heart back to you. And that we would go home and, and, and we would have a conversation with you and ourselves and our spouse and, and, and our kids about how we can anticipate you well this season. And so God, I pray that you would speak quick, quickly and with force today. God, that you would, you would show us the right things to do over the next nine days to anticipate you well. Scott, we love you.
We trust you. Pray that you would speak with a loud voice in our heart. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Thank you so much for being here this morning. Uh, you are dismissed. <laughs>